0: When we are commissioned to go forth at the end of this Mass, I hope what you'll do, among other things, is what we're supposed to be doing every week, to take these readings again, reopen them. So you've got the citation in the bulletin, you can open your Bible, click on our social media to direct links, or there are many websites that you can get this. Reread these passages this week as maybe the fundamental spiritual guide to bring you each day through the week. Reconsider them, And I'm going to encourage you for all of us to do together to at least focus on one very important spiritual movement that you can get, I think, quite directly from the first reading and the gospel reading. It's quite straightforward, but very important in day-to-day life, hopefully growing in God. I believe if we collectively focus on this this week, our community could be different as a result next week. So in the first reading, it's from Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a prophet at the turn of the 6th century before Christ. He serves for about 40 years as God's prophet, which means his call and his job are to speak God's truth to God's people. It so happens that he lives at a time when our Jewish spiritual ancestors, particularly their leaders, have largely become spiritually corrupt. They've embraced sinfulness. They've turned away from God in many ways. So a lot of what God tells Jeremiah to speak to God's people is not at all welcomed by God's people because they really like their sin. Jeremiah is, suffers terrible persecution through most of his career from religious leaders and from kings. He is really faced with abuse by false prophets who say he's not really speaking for God when he is. He's arrested. He's beaten up. At one point he's thrown into a cistern so hopefully he'll die sunk in the mud in the cistern We don't know how his life ends, the scripture doesn't tell us, but there are strong Jewish traditions that suggest that ultimately Jeremiah is murdered by his own people, perhaps starved to death by his own people, because they so reject the truth of God that he's speaking to them. point of all that is, this is a real life, this isn't a made-up story, that is a real tough life in the real sinful world. In the passage we just heard, Jeremiah is called by God to speak two big truths to corrupt leaders, corrupt kings. First part of the truth is, you have been doing evil. God sees it all. God cares very much. And you are going to be punished, ultimately, by God for the evil that you've chosen to do. The second part of the message is, inherently, God loves you. In your sinfulness, God still loves you. And God, over time, is going to lift up a remnant of God's people and is going to then expand that remnant. God still loves his sinful chosen people. And off in the future, God is going to lift up leaders who are not corrupt. Ultimately, in that passage, God is going to lift up somehow a king who is going to be justice himself. So here is the key spiritual movement I invite you to consider. Jeremiah has every reason to see these people to whom he's speaking negatively. In fact, he'd be an idiot to not see them negatively. You want to kill me, but you're lovely people. They're horrible people in many cases. He has every reason to turn away from these people, to say, I've tried this, you reject me, I'm out of here. He has every reason to just speak to a select group of people, the ones who actually do follow God. He has every reason to reject these people, every understandable reason. The key spiritual moment is somehow Jeremiah chooses to accept how God sees these people, which is with justice and with mercy. God reveals to Jeremiah that God has compassion for these people's spiritual hunger And Jeremiah chooses to do what he knows God wants him to do, which is to deliver the message, the full message. In my worst Irish moments, for example, I'd like to tell them the first part of the message, you're going to be punished. But the second part, God still loves you, and there's hope for the future, not necessarily so much, so it's a big deal. Doesn't say in there that Jeremiah feels good about these people. He may feel horrible about them, but he chooses to accept how God sees them and he chooses to do what he knows God wants him to do, deliver the message. Does this really matter very much? It matters entirely. It matters for those people. They receive the fullness of God's message about justice and about mercy It matters for us, for any sincere Jewish or Christian person, for all the centuries subsequently, we're able to look at that and experience revelation about who God is, about how God works in the midst of our sinfulness, and it matters for Jeremiah. Jeremiah, by choosing to accept how God sees these people and choosing to do what he knows God wants him to do, he lets more God into him. He allows God's power to flow through him. Those people can murder him. Those people can starve him to death. He is powerfully alive in God. And ultimately, that's the life that's going to bring him to eternal fulfillment. Okay, so hopefully you can follow this pattern. In the Gospel reading, we just heard same idea. So we're in the sixth chapter of Mark. Remember last Sunday we heard about Jesus is sending out his disciples on their first missionary journey. He sends them out to teach to heal people through his power, to dispel demons through his power. I think that's the only place in the passage we just heard in the Gospel of Mark where the disciples are called apostles, meaning they're sent forth by Jesus. So now they come back to Jesus and they're reporting to him all that they've seen and done. Jesus says to them, so Jesus is a phenomenon at this point, there are big crowds of people around Jesus and the disciples, so much so the gospel writer tells us they don't even have the opportunity to eat because there's so many people, there's so much busyness. Jesus says to the disciples, come away by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. Come away by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. So they do this. They get into a boat, say this is the lake, they get into a boat and they're headed over there. Some people hear about this and they tell one another, lesson number one, never tell people where you're going on vacation, I live by that. So they tell one another and people start rushing along the bank to get to where they think they're gonna land. They get up there in the boats, they get to the other place. Yes, they have come away. They are not by themselves. They are not in a deserted place and they are not going to rest a while because there's a big sweaty crowd of people waiting for them on the other side. Try to be honest with yourself. How would you feel if you were one of those disciples? Okay, John Driscoll, you can pretend you're wonderful. I'm not so wonderful. If I got over there and I saw those people, I think I would think they're a bunch of ugly sheep. They're a bunch of... Demanding people. They're just crowding around us all the time. I don't think I would have good feelings at all because I was wanting to be with Jesus in a deserted place to rest for a while, and all of that has been taken away. However, the disciples feel, the scripture tells us how Jesus feels. Jesus, when he sees the vast crowd, is moved with pity. That verb in Greek is from the Greek noun for your guts for your innards. Jesus, at the depth of who he is, is moved with pity for these people because they're like sheep without a shepherd. That's an Old Testament image, we just heard it in the Psalm 23. These are people who are spiritually hungry. They're people who don't have the leadership from God that they deserve. And so Jesus lives compassion. He doesn't just observe that, he enters into it and he does something he teaches them about many things. So back to that key spiritual dynamic. Does not say in there that the disciples feel good about the crowd. I am positive that they do not feel good about the crowd. Maybe one or two of them feel good about the crowd. What they choose to do is to accept how Jesus sees them. Jesus has compassion for their spiritual hunger. And they choose to do what they know Jesus wants them to do, which is just to remain with him. I mean, they could get back in the boat and say, I'm out of here. They can throw a hissy fit and go off to a rock and cry about themselves. They can just sit by the seashore and face outward and let Jesus do his thing. They remain with Jesus as he teaches the crowd for a thousand points, which has no financial value. And my undying admiration, does anybody know what Jesus then does with this crowd? Very good. Carol Beveridge, thousand points for you and my undying admiration. Jesus, right after this, takes five loaves of bread and two fish, miraculously multiplies the food, and feeds 5,000 people. It's the only miracle of Jesus that's reported in all four Gospels. In terms of numbers, it's the greatest miracle that Jesus performs during his earthly ministry. Once again, for my admiration, do you recall whom Jesus chooses to distribute the miraculous food? Okay, it's either um, Larry King, Joe Biden, or the disciples. Anyone have a guess? The disciples, wow. Jesus chooses the disciples. Be sure you're with me here, kids. Because they choose to accept how Jesus sees the crowd, no matter how they feel about the crowd, because they choose to remain and do what they know he wants them to do, they become part of and the instruments of Jesus' greatest, in a certain way, miracle, which is going to lead them, be part of them for the rest of their lives, which is part of all of our lives as Christians. That key movement is huge. Jeremiah, disciples, and us. Day by day in this community, I witness how that key spiritual movement is at the heart of so much growth in our living as Jesus' disciples. When a husband has deeply harmed his marriage and his wife makes the choice, feeling nothing but negativity toward him and harm from him, which is completely real. When the wife makes the choice to see that husband the way she knows Jesus does, as a person with great spiritual hunger, and she makes the choice to do whatever she knows Jesus would have her do, pursue the possibility of reconciliation, even when she can't imagine it, That's the key spiritual movement through which the Holy Spirit breathes. When adult parents are devastated by the failures of their adult children and feel terrible negativity toward these adult children who have blown their lives in so many ways, but those parents make the choice to accept how Jesus sees those children, with compassion for their spiritual hunger, and make the choice to do anything that they know Jesus teaches with with that child to open up some other avenue of possible growth, that's the key movement and moment through which the Holy Spirit breathes when so many of us in this community who have really had terrible experiences with people of other races or ethnicities in this community, and we choose with the negative feelings we really have built into us to recognize how Jesus sees whoever those people are with compassion for their spiritual hunger, And when we choose to do anything we know he teaches us to do, like worship together, like get to work for him in this community together, that's the key moment so often when the Holy Spirit moves through us. So so a lot of you are living this very, very deeply, much more than I. I encourage you to focus on that dynamic this week, that key spiritual movement. Three final notes. Number one, you always have to pray for this grace, even if you're quite a Christian. Jesus, give me the grace to see people whom I do not like, who have harmed me the way you do. Give me the grace to do whatever I know you would have me do with these people. Number two, it really gets easier the more you do this. It's not like you go back to ground zero every day. The more you actually accept how Jesus sees people, the more you see people from the get-go the way he sees people. And third and finally, a note for 2021. We have to be so rigorous about this. In our culture today, in this twisted country, that key moment is when we tell one another, destroy. When I recognize your limitation, and I am negative about you, it's only easy, lazy, just pathetic, to jump in with sarcasm, with aggression, and with canceling. Do you, uh, may I hope you get this, I will soon shut up. What would the devil like the most? In that key moment, when I have the opportunity to accept how Jesus sees you, and to do what he would have me do with you, what would the devil like the most? To cancel you, to destroy you. At that key moment, the devil would most like me to cancel, cancel culture, is the work of the devil. If we are careful about this, and if we live differently, boy, what an instrument of transforming love we can be in this lazy and very secular world.